I'd like to uh, introduce you to my bodhisattva bodyguards. <laughs> if you don't like the talk, take it up with them. <laughs> so we've covered some territory this week, huh? Some of the territory has been covered over and over and over and over. It's really remarkable. I think there are uh, roughly 84 of us, including the four of us, uh, and how you can have you know, 84 retreats going on in the same place at the same time and things not get wildly out of control. Uh, I think the, the reason for not moving has uh, become quite clear by now. It also protects the person near the bell uh, from someone leaping out of the group and strangling them. Um, I'm going to tell a story tonight. Not exactly a bedtime story, but close. Um, And first, a word about stories. The kind of story that I'm going to tell tonight, which I hope will move us into... uh, some uh, talk about uh, what we've been doing here this week and uh, what happens as we leave here tomorrow. Um, This kind of story is not, uh, it's different than the stories we have been telling ourselves often this week over and over. Stories about ourselves, um, how inadequate we may feel, what awful yogis we are, how wonderful we are, uh, the stories we've been telling uh, about other people, um, how great the teachers are. We hope you've told yourself that a lot. (laughs) Although I would guess there have been quite variations on that theme. Uh, Those small stories uh, that circulate over and over, around and around, Uh, often define our sense of who we are, what our boundaries are, what our limits are. Uh, The center uh, is I, and the circumference is quite tight. Um, There's an old uh, phrase uh, descriptive of uh, conflict situations in tight places. It's It's called having a fight in a phone booth if you can sort of imagine that. Uh, and the stories that we tell ourselves are often have that quality. Uh, they're uh, tight, they're restrictive, and uh, they seem to be very dead-endish in their outcome. The kind of story that I'm uh, telling this evening uh, takes us into uh, dream time. Now, I know that A number of us have spent a fair amount of time uh, this week in that territory. (laughs) So in some ways, this will seem very familiar. Uh, But it goes even beyond that. There are stories that that have come down to us uh, over uh, thousands of years that are uh, vehicles, carriers, protectors of uh, certain perennial insights, uh, wisdom, truth. 
those stories uh, often have a kind of fantastic flavor to them. Uh, they've been embellished. Uh, they've uh, attracted or, or uh, yeah, attracted a certain mythology around them. Uh, stories about the Buddha, his miraculous birth. Uh, sometimes it seems like religions are trying to, you know, sort of trump each other with how miraculous a birth their founder had. Um, there's the story of uh, the Buddha and Angulimala. Uh, some of you, I'm sure, have heard the, the famous uh, robber murderer who was uh, looking to make a new mark and uh, wear one of the Buddha's finger bones around his necklace and um, confronted him on the road and went to chase him down and kill him. Now, this is one of the mo more uh, horrendous, fearsome uh, humans around the territory at that time. And the harder he ran after the Buddha, um, he didn't seem to be gaining any ground on him. And finally, uh, in complete exhaustion, uh, he stopped and, you know, what's up? Uh, I'm chasing you and I'm getting tired and you're not. And uh, the Buddha said, well, Angulimala, I have stopped and you have not. True wisdom in the story. Truth about us in the story. Uh, did it happen in that particular way? Who knows? Uh, even in more recent times, um, the uh, founder or the reviver of the Thai forest tradition uh, Ajahn Mun uh, was uh, reputed to have talked quite frequently uh, to beings in other realms, uh, demons, angels, uh, even the Buddha and his retinue uh, were said to have appeared and uh, had an audience. Uh, there's a story of Ajahn Mun uh, confronting in a cave uh, a 30-foot uh, giant, demon, uh, who was the protector of the cave, uh, who carried an iron club that was uh, large enough to pound a full-grown elephant into the ground. Uh, did it really happen? Who knows? But these stories carry something to us, and they come over time and space. And this particular story uh, involves uh, an historical personage um, who was active about 12, 1300 years ago. Uh, and it comes from the Zen tradition. Uh, and the story itself is found uh, in a collection of, of uh, stories uh, called the Mumun Khan uh, that's used in, in Zen practice uh, or as study cases. Uh, with a deep bow to my Zen friends, who at this point would be saying, uh, open mouth, already a mistake. I will uh, do some work with this story in a way that is not uh, in the Zen tradition. Because I think it's useful for us in the practice that we've been doing over this last week and points us to, or at least suggests, uh, some possible ways for us to think about and work with what we've been doing here uh, in uh, the life that we move back into. 
Uh, it involves uh, an abbot uh, named Baijiang, uh, who was giving uh, a series of talks. And it sounds in the, in the story that it was not unlike what we've been doing here. The monks would file in uh, after a day of retreat. Baijiang would give a talk. They would go out again. And there was a certain old man who uh, accompanied the monks in to listen to the talk each evening. And when uh, the talk was over, he went back out with them again. And one night he stayed after the talk. And uh, Baijiang confronted him and he said, Who are you standing here before me? And the old man said, I am not a human being. Now imagine uh, someone walks in off the street, comes to these evening talks, uh, hangs around uh, after the talk, and walks up to Larry and says, Hi, I'm not a human being. Now, maybe an eye doesn't get batted, because in some way, that's what we're all saying, isn't it? That somehow, uh, deeply, we feel not whole, not complete, fragmented. Sometimes we say, I'm not good enough, I'm afraid, I haven't done enough with my life. But that can all be summed up in this deep feeling that somehow I'm not fully human. Something's missing. So uh, the man says, I'm not a human being. Ages and ages passed in the time of Kaishapa Buddha, an ancient Buddha that even preceded the time of Shakyamuni Buddha. I was a former abbot on this monastery, in this monastery on this mountain. A monk asked me, does an enlightened person fall under the law of cause and effect? I answered, no, an enlightened person does not fall under the law of cause and effect. For that answer, I was immediately reborn 500 times as a fox. a rather harsh consequence. You have to know that uh, fox spirits in Asia uh, are considered treacherous, uh, mischievous. They're sort of trickster figures that tend a bit towards the darker side. Uh, they're the familiar of witches, uh, a living embodiment of in irresponsibility of troublemaking, of evasion and deceit. Even today, there are shrines in Japan uh, to fox spirits where people leave offerings uh, seeming to say, please steer clear and leave me alone. So with this answer, the old man was born 500 times as a fox. And he says to Baijiang, please say a turning word for me so that I may be freed from this fox body. A turning word is something that uh, tilts us in the direction of awakening, uh, points us uh, to something that's true, uh, that will show us to ourselves in a fresh way. 
that maybe will help the veil, the scales on our eyes drop away a bit. Say a turning word for me that I may be released from this fox body. And then he asks, by John, does an enlightened person fall into the law of cause and effect? By John answers, an enlightened person does not evade the law of cause and effect. With this answer, the old man was awakened and made his bows. The story continues on. Uh, we don't know whether the old man lived happily ever after or not. Uh, but at the very least, he was released from this fox body that he had inhabited for 500 years. So what about this story? What about this answer that uh, had this probably very good-hearted, good-intentioned person uh, floating around in the netherworld in a fox body? And what was it about Baijong's answer uh, that allowed him to be free? This is a story about uh, responsibility and relationship. What is it that uh, keeps us from being most fully human? And where is it that we find our fullest humanity? And where is it that we find ourselves reflected back to ourselves with unerring clarity? The law of cause and effect, as I'm talking about it, takes place in the world of relationship. There's uh, a very subtle wish in most of us that somehow awakening will free us from the pain, the messiness that we find in our daily living. That if I'm just a good enough meditator, somehow, my partner will treat me the way I want to be treated. My children will be beautiful and loving and smart. Somehow they will skip over the teenage years. So I won't uh, question the genetic wisdom of being a species that doesn't eat their young. For those of you who have had teenagers or been teenagers, pretty much covers the room, I think. Uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When we uh, use our awakening or imagine that somehow awakening, clear seeing, will save us from the messiness of living, we fall into a fox body. At that moment, in the evasion of uh, human relationship, in the evasion of responsibility, we are no longer fully human. So to be in relationship means to be responsible. 
to have the ability to respond. Now that's something we've been practicing all week. We've been working directly with our reactivity, with our conditioned reactions, and we've been working with them quite directly by watching them. And we see the kind of energy, the kind of of, uh, attention that's required to see that reactivity so clearly that we're not washed away by it. And we see immediately why, why this practice is not for the faint-hearted. And why showing up, just showing up, is such a big deal. Someone said that, what, 90% of life is just showing up? We can just show up, or we can really show up and give our best effort. And we see the tenor in the room. We see where each of us are at this moment. We see the result of really showing up. So, we cultivate our ability to respond, our responsibility, through this activity of meeting our own reactivity. By being able, in that way, to slow down how quickly these things unfold. This happens, of course, in relationship. And we've been in relationship with something all week. I mean, it's impossible to to not be in relationship. That's why if we can't practice with, with relationship, where we're most fully human, then we have, to pre- we have to question why we're doing this. That to use our understanding in any other way than in the service of engagement is to once again fall into delusion. So Baijong is encouraging us uh, that the awakened person does not evade responsibility, cultivates the ability to respond, and actualizes that in relationship. So, what do we do when we go home? and we find ourselves in relationship with the subway and the people on the subway and our uh, angry, nasty teenager or our spouse, our partner who leaves their wet towels on the bathroom floor. How many times do I have to tell you pick the damn towels up? And no matter how much we want it to be other than it is, in some way other than it is, it continues being as it is, doesn't it? And no matter how much we beat our head against that particular wall, what's revealed to us is our own headache. 
So how do relationships become a mirror? How does it show us? How do they show us the edge of our practice? In the same way that sitting here has shown us the edge of our practice. Just sitting down and taking a look. What comes up? Irritability, boredom, sleepiness, restlessness, doubting. We fall asleep, we wake up. It's no different on the cushion than off the cushion. The same mind we find here, we find out there. The same messy mind we've been working with here. We meet when we go home. The biggest difference is we're in relationship with other messy minds. And most of them have not been doing what we've been doing. Relationships are not only a mirror. When we are in committed relationships, whether it's with another person or in a family, uh, in a group, uh, we're essentially living in a house of mirrors. And our vow is to uh, stay with that. To let that work on us. Which it inevitably will. Uh, in my other, uh, the other hat that I wear, I work with kids and adults and couples and families. And invariably what I see and in myself as well. I mean, I spent four and a half years in analysis, uh, plus other assorted forms of psychotherapy. That was a tough case. Um, it, with the same issue, wanting it to be other than it is. So what do we do with that? I've asked a number of you when you've uh, asked me during uh, group interviews, you say, well, how should I work with this? And you've heard the question, well, how do you think? And you know pretty much invariably you give a correct answer? That's responsibility. That's responsibility. And we have an increase in confidence as we leave here because that's what we've been doing the whole week. You know, the four of us sitting up here have essentially been holding down the stage. You know, providing a certain anchor. While you all have been engaged in this great work of self-knowing. So when we go back into these families, to these couples, with these co-workers, we'll find them pretty much as we left them. <laughs> and they will still recognize us. So disappointment may arise the comparing mind is not only stingy, but persistent. 
but the encouragement is to keep at it. There's a um, wonderful sign upstairs in the um, in the staff bathroom in the hallway where I where I'm staying. It's on the toilet. It says, this toilet is usable. But takes persistence and patience to flush properly. (laughs) I've been looking for an opportunity all week to tell you about that. (laughs) It's held my retreat the whole week. The one thing that I wish someone would do is to create a part of our education system whereby we could come to some understanding that relationships are designed to bring this stuff to the surface. You know, after the initial sort of everything's wonderful, we're in love, the kids are beautiful, whatever, when you get down to the gritty stuff, this is what relationships are for. They're a study place for us to meet ourselves. We meet joy and sadness and fear and despair and hope, we see ourselves at our most generous, at our most courageous, at our most loving, and at our most venal and mean and ugly. What does our practice tell us to do with that? It's going to come up. And it's the best opportunity we have to see ourselves as we are in that moment and by seeing ourselves in that moment have some chance for transformation to happen. Because when the energy of attention touches another mental energy, something changes. Right? It does. We've seen it over and over and over again this week. And there's a kind of magic to that. Do I do that? Does it happen? Indisputably. It's like the the, uh, all these little bitty bright awakenings we have throughout the day. You know, we're sitting And just like life, we've nodded off. And all of a sudden, we come back to ourselves. And we hear the passing car, and it pulls us back. You know, life calls us back. How does that happen? I mean, if you you can figure that one out, let me know, okay? But just keep it between you and me, because we're going into business together. I mean, there's a magical, mysterious quality of awakening that we can't pursue, we can't, and in some ways can't even train for. It's a natural awakening. 
It's the kind of, it's not different from the kind of natural love that arises or the natural attention, concentration that arises when we're doing something that we love. If, if I'm doing something I love, attention's not a problem. So these moments uh, of relationship, when whatever about us is being revealed is being revealed, that's both the place and the content of our practice. The challenge of this shouldn't be underestimated. You know, we all hear all the time people saying, you know, I just, I can't do it. Why can't I do it? Because it's hard. It's hard. And life pushes us right to the edge, doesn't it? A number of years ago, when my oldest daughter was about 16, you know, she was going through one of those periods where it's a good thing we don't eat our young. Because uh, she's grown up to be a lovely young woman, a self-supporting yoga teacher in New York City. Um, but I could have eaten her alive. during. You know, it's the typical sort of no matter what you do, what you say, it's... Argh. You know, it's like whatever you do to walk through the room, they bite you on the ankle. And you really shake, you know, it's... Ugh. <laughs> Even now, it's ooh, hard to go back there. So she was in one of those phases, you know. And I'd been trying to do, I'd run the gamut. I'm a meditator, right? I'm a psychologist. For God's sake, I ought to be able to do something here. Something to make it better. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. I walk into the, the family room uh, one morning. She's sitting there. I walk in. She looks up. She says, do you have to breathe so loud? <laughs> <laughs> now I get it. <laughs> now I get it. There's nothing I can do. But I really got it. And at that moment, it just all dropped away. The lesson is, keep hanging in there, because sooner or later you'll get it. It takes a certain amount of, not just courage and endurance, it takes a certain amount of willingness and a certain amount of toughness, frankly, which all of us have, to hang in there until we get to that point where nothing we do will do. So what do we do? And somebody confronts us and says, do you have to breathe so loud? And in that moment of not being able to do anything, there's no problem So you might wonder what happened next. <laughs> I, uh, in my blissful clarity and great relief, nodded and left the room. 
later when we were actually speaking again, um, I asked her, I said, do you remember what? And she did. I was a little surprised because for me, it had, up to that point, it had all blended into the same schmush. And, and I thought it probably had for her as well. And, I, and she said, yeah. And I said, so what do you remember? She said, well, I remembered you left the room. And it was said just like that. There was no anger. There was, and I, I questioned her a little more. Was it okay? She said, yeah, it was fine. Something happens in the mind when we're able to stay with what's happening. And we've all seen that this week. We've all had moments when no matter what we would do, it would not do. And something happens in that moment. You can call it surrender, you can call it awakening. You can call it a cab. I don't care. But something happens that is not me. Because I can't do that. I could not have had that encounter with my daughter. I tried. Believe me. I tried everything I knew and invented some things I didn't know. I talked to friends. They gave me ideas. I could not do what happened at that moment. But what happened in that moment could not have happened without my willingness and my working with that relationship and myself and staying with it and continuing to show up even when my heart was broken. We have the capacity to do that and everybody has had some realization of that. Everybody has had the experience of not being in the fox body this week. You know, we live, Larry used the, the Walenda high wire example. We do do a kind of balancing. You've heard all week, and if you read in the Theravadan literature, uh, you know, you hear about um, you hear a lot about impermanence and watching impermanence and things rising and passing away. You know, whatever comes, goes. They don't call it a veil of tears for nothing. You know, we experience love's lost. Children ill, parents dying, and lovers leaving. Uh, Kobunchino Roshi uh, translated the last uh, uh, gatha in um, the Heart Sutra as fall apart, fall apart, everything falls apart. And that's a reality for us. Uh, 
probably the best known phrase in the Diamond Sutra says, so you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom in a dream. And that impermanence is true and real. And there's another side to that the other side to the rope. Uh, the Japanese haiku poet Kobayashi Isa uh, wrote on the death of his seven-year-old daughter who was uh, the love of his life. This is but a dewdrop world, and yet, and yet. Our challenge is to hold both of those. The spaciousness of awareness has plenty of room for both. For engagement, for impermanence, for meeting our many selves in our many relationships. And becoming more and more acquainted with this amazing healing thing we call awareness. It's not just something we can do on retreats. If it is, we're in real trouble. <laughs> because we are all, each of us, going to spend more time not on retreat than on retreat. So the encouragement is uh, Trust what you've learned. Make it yours. It will be made yours in uh, the dustiness, in the grittiness, in the messiness. And at the same time, you can watch that uh, mind that labels all that as gritty and dirty and messy. As I try and negotiate my uh, youngest daughter's bedroom, getting caught with the label messy clearly distracts me from the task of getting from one room to the other without hurting myself. It is the way it is. Let's have a couple of moments of silence. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.